Father in heaven, I pray that you would take what I have prepared imperfectly and use it to set forth the perfect righteousness of the perfect Son of God and so continue your perfect work in the hearts of each one present here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Psalm 112 and this psalm is going to take us right to the heart of a very big question in the Christian life. It's a question that comes up all the time for us. And it's this, the Christian life, or the righteous life, as we'll call it, the life that this psalm sets out, this life, do we live it by our own effort, striving, struggling, resisting temptation, working, or does God do it in us? Do we live this life by our hard work, or does God do it, do it in us? That's a big question that we face, and this psalm takes us to the heart of that question as it sets out the picture of a righteous life or a life of righteousness. It's a life we can admire. If we could meet somebody like that, we'd be very impressed with that person, I'm sure. We'd be drawn towards them. But we by ourselves, you and me, all of us, by our own efforts, we are unable to live a life like that. Just as we, we heard this morning, we can't go for very long without blinking we're just unable to do this. That's the problem of righteousness. And so we'll look first at that problem. But God does not leave us like that. He wants us to live like the life in this psalm. And he knows that we're not able by ourselves. And so he's done something in us. We were dead, but he has given us a new life, a new righteousness. Something new has come into us from the outside and gives us new life and new energy and a new ability to live this righteous life. And so we'll see secondly, how does that happen, the source of righteousness? And then third, we'll ask, if we've been given this new righteousness, what then do we do? How do we turn what we've been given into the life of this psalm? What, what must we do? Does it happen automatically or are there things that we must do? How does this new righteous life grow and develop in us once we've been given it. So we'll see the problem, the source and the nurture of righteousness. Let's look first at the problem of righteousness. Now we need to look at a word that the psalm uses as a summary of this life that's been beautifully, beautifully described and it's the word righteous or righteousness. Now it's a word that means something that's straight as opposed to crooked. If you're building something or you're making a piece of clothing you might often need an instrument that tells you whether the lines are really straight or a device that tells you whether something is truly level. But more than that, there's an assessment aspect to it, an objective assessment against a standard. I think my fridge will fit through my door, but I can't be 100% sure until I've measured both. But more than that, it's not just an inspection of its dimensions. It's an inspection of its goodness. Is it good enough? Is it up to standard? Will it pass inspection? Will it be improved? But as well as that, there's a relational aspect to it. It's not just an objective assessment. It's personal. It's to be in the right standing with another who's able to pass judgment on us. Someone who can say whether we are up to standard or not, maybe like an interview for a job or a, a date with a potential future husband or wife. 
And of course there's a person, there's a set of eyes who's doing that inspection and it's very important to us to be approved of by those eyes or by that person. And of course that word describes God himself who's perfectly righteous in himself. Psalm 111 verse 3 tells us that his righteousness endures forever. But it's also the person in this psalm. That person has been assessed by no less than God himself and been found to be up to standard. He's in a righteous standing before God. And we see that in this person's life in four particular ways. And let's look quickly at those. First of all, we see it in this person's relationships. We see a stable, healthy family life with good, positive relationships. There's a lot of talk about what's wrong with family life today. We don't need to spend time there, except to notice that in our day, it's particularly hard to do, and all sorts of pressures and difficulties make living this way difficult. Look at his generosity towards the poor. He's got wealth and riches, verse 3, but he's generous and lends freely, verse 5. A person of high integrity, known as a person of his word. He says what he means. He means what he says, keeps his promises. He's the same in public and in private. How much we need that right now. But thirdly, he cares about justice, about how others are treated, that they get their due. There are two parts to this. There's a negative part. When people are doing wrong, that needs to be dealt with, needs to be stopped and subjected to judgment if necessary. But there's a positive aspect to it too. Justice is to give to those who are oppressed and weak and vulnerable their due, which means not just not treating them badly, but not ignoring their needs, putting things right for them. But this is also someone who can handle suffering. They seem to be able to move through life's problems without being shaken, verse 6. Dealing with bad news, verse 7. They seem to be able to deal with the difficulties of life in a way that, that we just can't. It doesn't leave them cast down in the same way. That's someone we can admire. That's a life we can aspire to. That's the life of righteousness that this psalm sets before us. And we would be forgiven for thinking that the way we're supposed to live this life is by striving and working and struggling and making an effort. So much of our normal life works in this way, doesn't it? That's what we tell our kids about school. That's how you students get your degrees, you work and struggle. That's how we go to work. We, we earn our pay by working. So are we talking here about the righteousness of human effort? And we must also remember that the Bible talks about striving for righteousness in a very positive way. Jesus himself, speaking to the people, says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a sense in which righteousness is something we're to summon up ourselves to do. There's a sense in which effort and struggling and striving and working is required. But there's a particular way to approach this. There's a particular shape to this work, this striving, this effort. It's to be focused in a particular direction. Some here might remember a talk last year by a man called uh, Stuart Burgess very clever engineer who was interested in designing things and how things work, um, spacecraft, 
racing bikes, among other things. And he was particularly interested in appreciating the beauty of design in God's creation. You might remember, if you were here at the talk, he had a, one of his projects was to try to design a machine that worked like a dragonfly. So they had little tiny components. They analyzed the motion of a dragonfly, slowed everything down, and with these little, very, very small nuts and bolts and so on, they tried to do, they tried to build a machine that would work like a dragonfly, and of course they couldn't. It's just not, it's not possible. They couldn't even get close. But for us to struggle and strive for righteousness by ourselves is a little bit like trying to work in that direction. It's just not possible. And we know this also because the Bible teaches us it's, it's true. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Paul spends time at the start of Romans setting out his argument that every single person is not righteous. And he su summarizes that argument in Romans chapter 3 and he uses a series of passages mostly from the Psalms to back up his argument. He doesn't use Psalm 112 as it happens but he uses a collection of other Psalms to make his point that there's no single individual human, man or woman, boy or girl, who's righteous. And so this picture of righteousness that's drawn for us in the psalm, by ourselves, we can't do this. So where does this leave us? We need to think about righteousness again. We'll state the problem. We see the picture of the righteous life in the psalm, and we've seen some of its aspects. We can admire it, but we must admit that by ourselves, left to our own devices, we are unable to live that way. We just don't have it in us. And we need to see next that this righteousness that's being talked about doesn't come from us, but it comes from God, the source of righteousness. <coughs> this is our second point. Now, preachers often ask you to have your Bible open in, in front of you. This is one time when it's slightly difficult to appreciate it on the screen, because if you look down at the psalm in your own Bible, if you've got it, You'll see at a glance that the two Psalms we read look quite similar in their structure, if you lie them side by side in the way their verses are set out, and so on. The same number of lines, the same number of lines in each verse. And if we were reading it in Hebrew, which of course we're not, but if we were reading it in Hebrew, we'd see that there's an alphabetical pattern at the beginning of each of the lines in Psalm 111 and carrying on to Psalm 112. This is telling us that these two Psalms are a pair. They're to be read together, which is why we've read them both at the start. And what's happening is that the psalmist is reflecting on what Psalm 111 says about God to write what he writes about the godly believer. And we've said already that our first thought is that we would strive to be similar to this person by using our willpower and our strength and our resistance to temptation and so on. But there's a more sustained and a deeper and a truer way for that behaviour and those characteristics to come into the believer's life. And it's not about trying to emulate that behaviour from the outside in by external pressure, but by reflecting something that's already put in there as the very righteousness of God himself. Look at verse 3 of both of the Psalms. We see these words, and his righteousness endures forever. And then in 112, 
the second half of verse 3, and his righteousness endures forever. Look at verse 4, Psalm 111. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. The second half of the verse reads, and in Psalm 112, he, this is the righteous man, is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. But how could such a thing happen? How could the very righteousness of God come into a human believer? Theologians have a big word for it, and it's the word imputation. Imputation. They say that God's righteousness is imputed into the believer. But how? What would a perfectly righteous human look like? How would they behave? How would that happen? And here we need to see something that the psalmist could only guess at. Look again at the description of righteousness that the psalm outlines. Think about relationships. What do good, healthy relationships always need? Among other things, they require us always to say the right thing at the right time. Our own human relationships require constant maintenance because we have a temperament. We have a certain way of behaving, a natural inbuilt way of behaving and responding. And because of our temperament, we often get it wrong. We speak up when we should stay quiet. We stay quiet when we should speak up, and so on. We're usually one thing or the other in our temperament, but imagine somebody who acted so perfectly in his dealings with others that he always said the right thing at the right time to the right person in the right way. Someone who could be bold but without being harsh. Someone who could be tender but without being weak. Someone of great wealth and riches, verse 3, but yet could give and give and give. Someone who even in life's darkness was not cast down, but could live without self-pity and bitterness. Someone who was gracious and compassionate, second half of verse 4 that we read, who had compassion on the crowd who'd been gathered for his teaching and now had nothing to eat, Mark chapter 8 verse 2 who had compassion on the people because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, Matthew 9, 36. Who had great wealth and riches, verse 3, and yet was generous and lent freely, verse 5. Whose affairs were conducted with absolute perfect justice, and yet not a justice that was harsh, but with kindness and grace and mercy at the same time. Somebody who was transcendently self-sufficient and yet totally reliant on his heavenly father with a steadfast heart, trusting in the Lord, verse 7. Always insisting on truth, but always bathed in, loved, in love. A man of complete integrity, but without rigidity. Wasn't Jesus' life beautifully righteous? But if Jesus came to live a perfectly righteous life, to be a model of that perfection that we see laid out in the psalm, that would be great. We'd have a living, breathing human example of how a perfectly righteous life was to be lived. And that would be very helpful for us by itself. But it wouldn't transform us just to see that. It would give us something to aim for, but it wouldn't be life-changing by itself. But the really good news is that this perfectly righteous human man who had in him the full righteousness of the almighty living God didn't just demonstrate that with his perfect life, but he gave it to people like you and me. It wasn't just that he had those characteristics in his own life. 
he wasn't just that he lived a beautiful life of righteousness. He did something far more. Look at the last verse of the psalm, verse 10, which tells us what's going to happen to the unrighteous. That's what we deserve as those who fail to live the righteous life that God requires. And the staggering truth of the Bible is that this perfectly righteous one, although he lived perfectly and deserved the blessing that verse 1 starts with, actually voluntarily endured that judgment and he gave his own righteous life as he was brutally murdered. He was, as verse 6 has it, has it, shaken cosmically. That's what Jesus did on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is how another psalm begins. Jesus was rich for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Why did he do this? In order to bring about, as Josh called it last week, and as, as Eamon called it just now, a great exchange, a wonderful exchange, in which we get his righteousness. Paul sums it up brilliantly in 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, 20, chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we finish by going back to the question that we started with. Do we do the work of righteousness ourselves or does God do it in us? The answer, of course, is yes, both. There's work for us to do, but God works in us. And so we, we have to ask now as we finish, how do we do this? What work then do we do? If God has put his righteousness in us, how then do we nurture that righteousness? Now that this great exchange has happened and we've received the very righteousness of God and Jesus dies the death that we deserve to die so that we have this righteousness in us, how then do we proceed? You see, we grow to imitate the righteousness of God in, in us. Think of a baby. In a way, it already has all the life it's ever going to have. It's got all its DNA. It's got its brain cells. It's got a fully functioning cardiovascular system but it's got all its potential still to realize and to develop. It's going to turn into so much more as it grows. And so there's a sense in which we have everything right here and right now. You remember last week, if you were here, Josh pointed us to some passages that show us that truth. But at the same time, there's a growth to happen. There's a potential to be realized. There's a now and a not yet. And for now, we're thinking of that not yet part of it. And specifically, what can we do to nurture that righteousness in us? Because it won't happen automatically, just left to itself. It needs us actively to nurture it. There has to be work and striving and effort. And so it's in that very different sense that the Bible exhorts us to strive for righteousness a bit more like the work a parent does in bringing up a child or the work a farmer does in bringing up a crop. 
Yes, there's hard work and sacrifice and it requires effort, but it's got a particular shape and a particular direction. And it's not that any old work will count as long as it's done sincerely. We're to focus our efforts in a particular direction. But what sort of work are we exhorted to do? Does the psalm help us to know how we can nurture and develop the righteousness that's planted in us? Well, yes, it gives us three things we can do, and we'll finish by looking at these. First of all, there's trust. Look at verse 7. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. What would it mean to trust God? The psalm says at least two things are going to challenge your trust in God. The first is that bad news or evil tidings will come in verse 7. Will you be devastated? Will you be cast down? Or will your heart be steadfast, trusting in the Lord? Secondly, there'll be enemies, verse 8, making your life difficult in various ways. We've looked at that recently in Ezra chapter 4, if you've been here. Will you be tempted to give it all up or will you continue to trust in the Lord? And the reality is that we're always to some degree trusting in other things as well as God. We have talents and abilities. We have maybe jobs or a bank balance. We have things that we think we might be able to fall back on. This psalm is challenging us to put our trust instead in God only. We've been looking at Psalm 40 recently in the evenings. We did Psalm 40 verse 4 some weeks ago. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Ian gave us a very helpful picture of a skydiver waiting to jump. And at the moment of jumping, he has to transfer all of his trust away from everything else and onto that one thing, the parachute. From, from the moment of jumping, all his eggs are in one basket, as Ian put it. And that feels a bit counterintuitive, but that's just what trusting in God means. It means to not trust in other things. Other good things, maybe. Things, yes, to be enjoyed and used, but not to be relied on solely. They can fail, they can go wrong, and only God can be completely trusted. How would trusting God, though, play out in, in actual work, in actual righteousness? Well, in many ways, we can't do this now but to trust in God would mean at least to rely on his promises and the Bible is full of them of course if you're here last Sunday Josh said out a few of those promises the references are on the screen James chapter 1 verse 5 was one of them to trust in God means to trust in his wisdom and if we lack wisdom we can ask of him who gives liberally to all without reproach so that's one way in which we can strive for righteousness is by trusting in the promises of God Secondly, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, verse 1. And this takes us back to what we've already said about trust. Because if, if the man is trusting in the Lord, then bad news comes and threatens some aspect of his life. He doesn't need to be overwhelmed. He doesn't need to be cast down completely because whatever that thing is, it's not the most important thing in his life, which is his relationship with God. So he doesn't fear bad news in the same way. The fear we're thinking of in the first verse, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. The same fear is seen at the end of Psalm 111 in the last verse there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And this is a positive and a healthy fear, a fear that we're supposed to have. But in what sense are we supposed to fear God? 
Because if the very righteousness of God has been transferred to the believer, if God has sent his perfect son to live a perfectly righteous life, and if we have received his righteousness, then it can't mean to fear God's judgment, because that that couldn't be. But instead, Psalm 130, verse 4, it's a fear of dishonoring what God has done, that effort, that love, that Jesus put into securing our righteousness as we saw in the communion service. And so we want to please him. We want him to delight in us and we work and we strive for righteousness and that we don't want to disappoint him. We fear disappointing him. And so we scan the Bible for his instructions and his laws and the things that he delights in that we might do those things. And lastly, there's praise. If we want to live the righteous life of Psalm 112, which we've said means to nurture and develop and realize the righteousness that God has graciously given us in Christ. One of the, one of the ways we're going to do that, as well as trusting in God and fearing God, is by praising God, which is in fact where the psalm starts. The very first verse is praise the Lord. So we'll finish with that thought. There are several aspects to this. It's mental because we use our minds to do this. We're commanded to love God, are we not, with all our heart, strength, soul and mind. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 111 and notice the word studied there. The works of God are studied by all who have pleasure in them. That's talking about using our minds, thinking out reasons why God deserves our praise, thinking about the works of God, which we've been looking at in Psalm 40, verse 5 recently, his works of creation, his works of providence, as we looked at last time. But also there's an emotional aspect to praise. God and his word are delight to us rather than a duty. The word delight comes up in the first verse as well, who delights greatly in his commandments. But thirdly, praise is very much connected to the rest of our life and our thought and our action. As we've been going along, we've been trying to see particular ways that we're exhorted to work or strive or struggle for this righteousness that God has planted in us. And praise connects us to the hard work of living a righteous life as well. It's not just about singing in church on Sunday, although of course it is that. So don't think of praise as being somehow separate, as if there's obeying God in fear and in trust, and then there's praising. No, praising and fearing God and trusting God all go together. When his mother called a little boy to come and clear up his mess, he said, I can't, mummy, I'm singing songs to Jesus. And she responds, there's no use singing songs to Jesus while you're being disobedient. God delights not just in words of acclaim, but in people who obey him. And if you get an emotional experience, but you're not willing to obey, then you're using him without giving yourself to him. So we shouldn't sing God's praises if we're not willing to strive and struggle and nurture the righteousness he has put in us by trusting him and by fearing him. Finally, praises to be public. It's possible, of course, to praise all by yourself. But how much greater it is to have somebody with you. You can appreciate something yourself, but to get another person to appreciate with you the wonder and the delight and the joy of this thing 
that has captivated your heart makes it even greater. Look at this thing with me. Can't you see what I see? How amazing this is. And that's how we look at God's righteousness. As, as here, as we're together, we're saying to one another, look at the righteousness of God. Look at how he sent a perfectly righteous one who lived a perfectly righteous life and then voluntarily died and subjected himself to the judgment that we deserved in order that his own righteousness could be given to us, to you, to me. And now we're completely righteous in his sight and we're really praising, as it were, if we grab one another and point to these truths and say, look at that, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? And so with that thought, we'll finish and we'll sing together from Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would take your word and use it to complete your work in us. Help us to trust in you, help us to fear you, and may our lives be a constant praise to you. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.